This is Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. This is Bo Sanders. We're piecing it all together with you. You are listening to episode 15. And in episode 14, we introduced the topic of piecing and peacemaking. And we want to follow up with that with today's episode. Yeah, with some, some thoughts of what we might learn from Native Americans and our history as peacemakers. Yeah, so when you and I were talking about this, you said that there is an indigenous tradition of peacemaking that was unique for especially those of us from a Western framework with stuff that we may not have considered. Right, because the the whole myth was that the bloodthirsty savages are hiding behind the trees waiting to cut people's hair off and and uh, scalp them, you know, and and, uh, and and that was used to dehumanize Native people in the same way that we dehumanized the Vietnamese people during Vietnam in the same way we dehumanized the, the uh, Germans in World War II and the Japanese in World War II in the same way we dehumanized the Iraqis, the invasion of Iraq. That's terrorists, yeah. That's what happens when you go to war. You have to dehumanize the people first. And so Native Americans have this great reputation. In fact, so much that, that even the military names a lot of their uh, helicopters. The, you know, they name them after uh, chiefs. They name them after tribes. Oh. Um, and even when uh, Osama bin Laden was eventually killed by the SEAL Team 6, I think it was, his name was Geronimo. So that was his code name. So when they said Geronimo oh, is right. down, yeah, right, and a lot of native people were upset about that. And then they they use the uh, terms like hostiles, like native people, right? Uh, like uh, we're taking hostile fire, and uh, and there's other terms that they use that are basically huh. that war against Native America is huh. is built into the military language. Jargon. Wow, it's just embedded in so many of the code words and the. The monographs. That's amazing. Right. And, and, and that's because uh, that war uh, against Native America took so long and cost so much. I guess they figured out they had to get good use of all that stuff. So, Wow. Well, I am interested. You obviously bring um, a lot of research to the table in this. You wrote a dissertation about harmony and the harmony way that is found in so many indigenous traditions well all that i know of so so in my dissertation and i don't i don't do not wish to get uh, nerdy at all but just real quickly um, i had uh input from 45 tribes um from 11 different uh elders spiritual leaders uh, and and this was from all regions of the country to to talk about this concept of harmony and and what that means and every one of those 45 tribes knew exactly what i was talking about uh, it's a widespread construct uh, you know, you could probably stretch it and say it's universal, but it's at least what we call in academia a widespread construct. That means you find it all over the place. Huh. And of uh, this idea that harmony is um, probably our most important value is to be at harmony, uh, be at peace, if you will, be in balance with, with the world around you and with yourself. Well, I am uh, looking forward to that. I, one of the things that I just love about um, this concept that you uh, research is that you, you found it in not just uh, American, North American uh, cultures, but that in people groups around the world. Yeah, so it was amazing because 
As um, I went to school, and, and I would say that probably uh, well over 50%, maybe 60% of the students that I, I did my um, doctoral work with were from other countries, um, all over the place. And then I, I have friends from other countries as well. And so what I've found is that not only is this a widespread construct, the, what I call generically as the harmony way, and of course every tribe and every language has a different a way of saying that in um, in our Kitua way, we would say uh, Elohe, or they might say Deyukti. Um, in others, like the Navajo, they might say Hojon, and they call it also Beauty Way. Um, so it's this it's this overriding value of ways to live. But other countries have it as well. Other indigenous people groups, and I've I've met Samoans, I've met um, Hawaiians. Of course, the Aloha idea is much more than you know. Uh, than just a, really a greeting. It's it's that whole aloha construct. Um, I met people from uh, different countries in Africa, uh, such as uh, Maasai, for example, Zulu. They have, uh, what's that called, Mbutu, I think is uh, mm-hmm. what they call it. Maoris in New Zealand, Aboriginals in Australia. Um, so um, I, I know a, a person uh, who uh, is from a uh, indigenous tribe in the Philippines, and I think they call it Leiting. I can't remember mm. exactly if that's right. But anyway, it is what I would call the original instructions for all peoples, and mm. that's how to live in peace, how to live in harmony. And um, we have set up a world that is in contrast to that, and we need to get back to learn how to be peacemakers. I think we have some stuff to learn from indigenous peoples. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So... Listeners, while, while we're settling in here, we wanted to thank you for uh, sharing the previous episodes with your friends and networks and social media. Thank you for your support on Patreon. Um, thank you for the reviews on iTunes. It helps us to find new audience and to uh, expand our broadcast. So we are really grateful for your comments and your questions and your feedback, your shares and your support. It means a lot to us. We're going to dive into this thing. It's okay, okay with you. Um, I like uh, t- uh, we've talked about this contrast um, and that, but just think about it. It makes more sense to be at peace than at war. <laughs> we think we have a lot to gain in war, but sometimes we um, shroud over what the real costs are. Yeah, it is and, costly. Uh, and and those uh, that has that rippling effect yeah. in it. It's demoralizing, uh, among other things, but it also there's a cost to the earth, there's a cost to the economies, there's a cost to, uh, to families and the lives of their children uh, or fathers or uncles or you know, whoever it is that, that is lost and whoever it is that is suffering from um, mental anguish or PTSD or afterwards. There's all kinds of hidden costs that uh, we often forget about. But, but just think of it from, as a, from a, a trade perspective. If we are at peace, um, we have uh, the ability to have uh, a more equal trade system. And that if we are at war, uh, it's maybe not as easy then to trade with countries that um, are either you're at war with or who uh, are, might side with those who you're at war with. And there's trade problems then. And so creating tariffs um, for, to try and equalize trade is, is probably not the best idea. Um, probably trying to get away from any tariffs is probably a better idea. So there's truly free trade, but I'm not an economic expert. I wouldn't know, but, uh, but I think as our indigenous people, um, 
in America at least, knew it was a lot easier to be at peace and do trading with one another than it was to always be at war, looking behind your back, and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so, so we had actual groups. Most people don't realize that that we had um, usually a tribe or a band who who sort of focused on being those middlemen, those mm-hmm. traders uh, among our tribes. So, and then that there were trade languages. So in uh, the southeast, there was a trade language. It was called the Mobilian language, and mm-hmm. uh, and so and then there was a group, the Shawnees. Who, mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone's heard of the Shawnees, sure. Tecumseh, and and other uh, you know Daniel Boone chronicles and things <laughs> like that. But um, uh, the Shawnees were largely set up as a tribe who did a lot of trading, and so they would travel back and forth. And then and then every village or every group would have different people who went around and traded, and mm-hmm. because they wanted good stuff, people wanted things. They wanted different foods, not just the same food they always had, and and so they would trade. In the northwest, where we're at, um, the uh, Chinook Wawa was the trade language, mm-hmm. and um, largely it was the Chinooks on the river and the Western Klickitat, who were basically a, a tribe who primarily moved on horseback, uh, on land. And those were the traders who were set up at this time, who would visit different villages and set up trade agreements and trade uh, uh, items to one another and those kinds of things. And so, and in the um, the trade language, of course, of the Plains, uh, where it's much more open and there was a uh, Indian Sign Language. And so, uh, so there was a common language there. And so... This is a very um, um, complex system mm. that's set up to, to accommodate trade, and war would disrupt that. Mm. And so, first of all, I guess the first point would be that, that uh, being at peace is a lot better for everybody. Yeah. One of the things that I just love um, that you constantly remind different groups that I hear you speak to and your students, there is a better way, right? And I just want to say, like, I'm not an idealist. I'm really not. I don't believe in utopia. I'm not looking for perfection. But there are things we can learn from the past and from other cultures because there has to be a better way than this thing that we are caught up in yeah. and all of the conflict and the consequences of negative consequences that we're suffering under. So I just want to say for the record, I'm not an idealist. I'm not looking for perfection. I don't believe in utopia. But there has to be a better way. So I'm open to new ideas. Yeah, and maybe I am an idealist, but I'm definitely not a utopian uh, person. (laughs) Um, uh, I kind of am always trying to make the world a better place. So that's sort of what... my my itch that I always need mm. to be scratching right. It's mm. uh, I want the world to be a better place, um, not just for me, but for other people, for my children and grandchildren and great grandchildren and those generations that come after them. I want mm. the world to be a better place because life is good if we can live it well. Mm. And uh, and you know I think everybody wants that I in the it, end, yeah. right? That's there are a lot of tribes who had figures who came throughout their histories and they would create. Uh, a sort of uh, set of values, or at least people that would go back to those values and say, a lot of our teachings are built on these people. And so, for example, the, the Cheyenne tribe, they had a, a prophet whose name was Sweet Medicine. And Sweet Medicine talked about peace, and he created a system of 44 peace chiefs. So if you were a chief among the Cheyenne, who people understand, you know, from uh, the Indian Wars, 
uh, quote unquote, um, I don't know why they always call them the Indian Wars because we didn't start them. <laughs> but um, so uh, if you uh, look back, the Cheyenne were definitely a formidable people, mm. uh, a lot of warriors and um you know, our people knew how to fight when they had to fight and defend. Remember, they were defending their own territory. War was being fought in their land and among their children and among. So uh, you have to have a uh, superior sense of protection and defiance uh, in order to uh, be uh, have victory if you're going to fight in those circumstances. These guys were coming from the east, mostly often from the Civil War. And they were, you know, like, you know, this isn't my land. I'm out here fighting on someone else's land. So they didn't have much to lose. Um, hmm. So uh, so Cheyenne had uh, sweet medicine, and he set these high moral standards for the Cheyenne people. And there were 44 peace chiefs, and, uh, and still are today, by the way. Hmm. And those peace chiefs' job is to assuage the warriors into, with their wisdom. And a lot of these people had been warriors themselves uh, and seen the cruelty and the ugliness of war uh, to find a more peaceful path. And Sweet Medicine set that system up and, and he would tell them things like, hey, you chiefs are peacemakers. Um, if strangers come and, and they want to, uh, 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 you know, uh, hurt you, set down with them. Um, if you're, even if your son is killed in front of your own teepee, take a pipe and smoke so that you can understand them because your job is to create peace. So, so never refuse anything that anyone gives to you. And I've, I've been at uh, Cheyenne celebrations and ceremonies before where uh, a certain song is played. And at that point, that peace chief, people come up and ask him for things, and they cannot refuse. If they have it to give, whether it's a car, uh, whether it's the money that they have, whatever, they give what they have to give for the people because oh that's what a chief is about. Wow. It's a, it's a person who gives for the people. And so these are peace chiefs. There were huh. no such thing as war chiefs among the Cheyenne people. Huh. Um, and, of course, the, the most famous probably person uh, that we all know of because of the Longfellow poem and others is the idea of Hiawatha, right? So... Um, the, among the uh, Iroquois people up in, um, uh, you know, the can, uh, Finger Lakes and Canada and New York uh, area. So um, they had the peacemaker. Uh, and the peacemaker came. The Six Nations were, were uh, not living a peaceful life. They were at war with each other and things. And he came and, and brought his teachings and basically uh, was able to uh, help them to come at peace with themselves and uh, I like there's one example of uh, the peacemaker whose name was uh, Degana Wedda and uh, forgive me um, uh, Iroquois and Six Nations people if I pronounce that wrong but um, his his job was to uh, he, he first met Hiawatha and and Hiawatha had lost all his uh, children um, to a war mm. except for his youngest and then this evil uh, medicine man had cast a spell on his youngest daughter and she died. And Hiawatha said that he lived like an animal. He went out into the woods and he lived like an animal and, and he couldn't find any peace. And so Daganawitha came and was supposed to have been floating in a stone boat across a lake and, and met Hiawatha and was very prophetic and helped him go through a, a series of conciliation ceremonies so that, so that he could um, come to peace with what had happened in his life and his the life of his family, and Hiawatha mm. was with the Ganawitha when he 
went to this medicine man who had killed his last Hiawatha's last daughter, and it says that uh, he was a cannibal. And it says that uh, that it was Hiawatha who went and combed the snakes out of his hair, mm. which I think is a metaphor, right? But um, uh, but the idea is that um, that there has to be this confrontation in a peacemaking fashion, mm-hmm. and so so the the those nations, uh, those Iroquois nations, now live at peace with one another, and they still have their original uh, forty nine peace chiefs. Who were set up to keep the peace of the people in their democratic government, and uh, there's there's one there's really fifty, but that fifty is for Daganawitha, and they actually take the names of the original um, forty nine who are passed down into uh, uh, into those tribes, um, and they are peacemakers. They they live according to peace, um, and so there there are all these characters who come through our different tribes, prophetic characters, you might say, well, some are myths and some are historic. And it really doesn't matter because the truth is, is they are all pointing to peace. Mm. And so we have these teachings, right? And we have these stories. Um, and then we have actual facts of what happened. And one of the, one of the ceremonies of our people, our Katua people is, uh, they called it a cementation ceremony. And, and that it, there's a time of the year where you have to restart your fires. Fire is very sacred among our people. You restart your fires, and if you have two of anything, you give one away to someone who doesn't have it. Um, you, uh, you you sweep out your house. You can, it's, a, it's a cleansing time. And one of the things you have to do at that time is if you have aught against another person or family, there's a ceremony that must take place. Oh, wow. And you line both families up together, and the two people who are at odds actually strip naked and exchange each other's clothes during the ceremony. And um, so, so uh, which I realize in this context, it sounds a little bizarre maybe. But, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, what you're doing is basically saying we are becoming, uh, we're forgiving one another. We're wow. becoming a part of one another. And, and so they give the very clothes off their back to the other person. They give the clothes off their back to that person and then a, a fire is made and, and a holy person speaks and preaches and 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 everyone makes a vow to never bring this up again and so um so there's a lot of things a, yeah. a lot of things even in cherokee culture um the women made the final decision about who went to war or not you know, which, is which is a yeah. wonderful idea you know i would love it right if if our uh, grandmothers were making those decisions mm-hmm. wouldn't it? i think we'd uh, be a much uh um, better world yeah. uh, if we could do that. Um, you know, largely war has been a male enterprise. Right. One of the things that I'm just always struck by, um, and I haven't heard some of the examples that you've used today. They're they're new to me. Some I'm familiar with, but I continue to just be challenged by the idea that peace is not passive. It requires energy and intention and consistent effort. And it really stands out to me how much um, deliberate and intentional work goes into peace. Right. Yeah. So uh, another one um, was um, when uh, you 
made a, a reconciliation with another village because there was really n- not much of a time when every village of every tribe was against every village of another tribe. So it was really, the, that's kind of a, a misconception. Is yeah. that like, well, all the Cherokees were at war. So for example, um, my ancestors fought uh, in the uh, Chickamaugan War. They were called later Chickamaugan Cherokees. They were the ones who wanted to fight against the United States for their freedom against tyranny. Mm. At the same time that the United States claimed to be fighting against tyranny from Britain, ironically. And um, uh, and, and so that that whole system of of fighting uh, only involved about half the Cherokees. The other half wanted to stay neutral. And they would fly white flags from the villages. It ended up not making a difference because they would still burn those villages and everything anyway. But the Chickamaugans were called Chickamaugans because they moved from traditional Cherokee land in the southeast down into northern Georgia and Alabama in what they called the Chickamaugan towns. Mm. And uh, and they had the longest war in U.S. history, by the way. Um, The... um, uh, it was, I think, a 19-year war altogether oh. um, against the U.S. And um, uh, eventually my uh, third great-grandfather uh, was given a peace medal um, sent by George Washington, given by Governor Blunt of Tennessee, with 41 other uh, headmen and chiefs um, for making peace. And that peace didn't really stick. It was a bad treaty and a bad deal. And the United States kind of reneged on what they were supposed to do. And so they fought for another five years after that, but uh, the Chickamaugan War. But um, so, so I'm descended also from a peacemaker, even though he was a war, war leader. Huh. He also uh, became a peacemaker. And, and, and that also um, pricks my conscience and says, well, what are you doing to, to maintain that peace that he made? So, so another, another um, thing that we would do is, uh, I guess, in Native America is that when you made peace with that other group, you would send relatives to that village. You would marry them in or send them to live so that you're not going to make war against your relatives, right? Mm. So that would seal the peace, right? And uh, another idea um, uh, was, uh, in, in a lot of tribes in the southeast had this. In Cher- Cherokee, we called Anijode, and that it's called Little Brother to War, and it's a stickball game. And so if you were, for example... <laughs> about to go to war with another group, another village or group of villages, because let's say it was going to be a famine year. And that's what most wars in Indian country were were fought generally over survival, not over trying to take each other's land over or not over um, religion. I don't think there was ever a religious war fought in Native Mm -hmm. America. And so uh, maybe, okay, say, so there was one kind of famous one that was between the, some of the Choctaw villages and the Cherokee villages. And uh, it was going to be a rough winter. Everyone knew that. And so uh, usually lands were surrounded by kind of uh, this neutral hunting space. And then that's where the friction always took place was in those hunting grounds usually. And someone might be killed. And so, so the, uh, uh, then the group, the idea, the ethic was if, well, if one or two got killed, then you could only go kill one or two of them. So the, the idea was a, a very limited kind of war, mm. first of all. So it's totally different than the uh, idea of the empire. And, uh, and, and secondly, um, if it could be avoided by, by playing stickball, um, then the winner of the stick... Now, stickball was a dangerous enterprise. Stickball, people were killed sometimes, you know. Yeah. But 
there's a famous game between the Cherokees and the Choctaws, and the Cherokees won. So the Choctaws had to say, okay, we give up this section of hunting grounds. We'll let you do it. And now we've got to go maybe to the other side of our nation and push out the Chickasaws or Creeks or somebody like that, right? And uh, and I guess you had to make sure you had the best stickball players. Uh, wow. So uh, could you imagine playing uh, a, a game, um, you know, and the winner won the war, basically. It was One of the first times I ever heard you talk about uh, different techniques for avoiding war, um, there was a concept, and I'm, I'm, I've lost the name of it, but um, if you touched somebody, you didn't have to kill them. But the coup. Yeah. Acoustic. And so I was a Plains tribe thing. Yeah. Okay. And I remember the first time that I heard you say that some of the students got really upset and saying that you were, um, you know, romanticizing or given some type of uh, um, primitive purity to idealism, to native uh, concepts of war. And you just said, no, 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 we had war. But it was always a last resort, and here were these other ways, right, that were built into the system to let off the pressure before it escalated to that. And you said, but what we've got now, what, what came from Europe was a totalizing, right. domination, uh, destruction view of war. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't eye for an eye. It was complete annihilation right and so yes uh native tribes had <coughs> war yeah no i don't mean to idealize this right. in any way in fact uh native people were good at war yeah um you know trained to be warriors everything else but it was not and and war didn't just happen war had to be deliberated throughout uh, so that uh, all the people could be heard and decisions were made and then um, the whole nation might not go to war, but just a few villages. Mm-hmm. And even in those few villages, you know, a person would stand up and make their case, and every person had a say, right? So I'm talking particularly right now specifically about our uh, Cherokee way as I've understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every person in the council, it would drive the British crazy because to, to, to make any decisions, the Cherokees would go for three, four, five days of council meetings because every person had to have a say. And so those council houses were always mm-hmm. big enough for each person. And uh, and then the, it drove them crazy because the women also had a say. And they would call us a petticoat government because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, and so, um, and then they, they would, uh, each person would have their say. And they finally would decide, you know, okay, so follow me to war against these villages. We have to, you know, exact revenge or whatever on these five people or whatever. And so, um, and they might kill them, they might kill five people, or they might capture five, or any combination, and then the women would decide what happens to the Mm. persons, and they would become a a part of, they would basically be slaves, or enslaved, I should say, and, um, but those slaves often grew up into, become family members, and adopted into the tribe, so... Anyway, that's no excuse for uh, being enslaved. That's a horrible thing regardless. Um, But if you followed that person into war, um, everybody didn't have to do it, just the ones who thought it was a good idea and could. And then if they got there and they said, well, this this isn't what he told us, they could turn around and go back. They're not a deserter. They're smart. (laughs) And so... You know, it's a whole different con- yeah. concept than uh, what we do here where we draft people and say, you know, you have no choice. And uh, 
so anyway, that was um, the way that uh, often things went. That was more the ethic of war. It was a whole. It was not only you know peace first, but there was an ethic of more of a, a, a just oriented war rather than being no rules. Let's wipe them out and take control. Yeah, I just uh, think it's an important distinction because it's not an all or nothing thing. Like, oh, we were a peace loving people. And then, you know, this machine of war showed up. No, there was war, but it was, it had layers and tiers to it yeah. and built in safety valves. Right. And then what empire or, or colonial, uh, you know, settler colonialism brings is an annihilation and a total destruction. It is a totalizing war. Right. And it's just, it, they're two totally different things in that sense. In their intensity and their scope. Yeah. So I'll give an example. And often these are some of the best horsemen and best archers, you know, anywhere. So my wife's tribe, the Shoshone people, they fought a three-day war with the crows. She's also uh, descended from crows, by the way. But um, uh, And uh, that was uh, fought in uh, Wyoming near a place uh, now that they call uh, Crowheart Butte. And this was on the direction of their uh, chief at the time, whose name was Chief Washakie. Uh, and so they fought for three days. So we're talking about some of the finest warriors, some of the best shots. And, and only five or six people were killed in those three days, which is a very low mortality rate, some from each side. And, and they finally saw that, you know, hey, we're not going to, because they're not just trying to kill each other. They're also trying to get with this coup stick, um, it's much more brave to t- touch someone with a acoustic rather than to, uh, you know, just kill them flat out. And so this is a time for young men and others to, to gain honor, you know, according to, you know, how long your acoustic was, I guess. Mm. And, and so finally, the, the chief uh, of the Shoshones, um, Chief Washke, said, let's, he, he said to the Crow chief, his name was Big Robber, and uh, he said, let's just you and me fight. And we'll go up to Crowheart Butte. It wasn't called that then, and you can probably guess, spoiler alert, why it was called that later. But um, and, and he said, and whoever wins will get the Wind River Valley, where my wife's tribe is now located, and in Wyoming there. And, uh, uh, and so they fought, and they said that uh, um, uh, Chief Washakie uh, killed Big Robber, cut his heart out, put it on a lance, and then held it up. And uh, the, the the crows left and never came back to the Wind River Valley. And that's why they call it Crowheart Butte, of course. Oh wow! But uh, yeah, that's quite so a story. yeah, and and so there was. You know, I'm not saying there wasn't barbarism. I'm not saying there wasn't ex- extreme fighting, and but it's not the same thing as wars uh, that support empire. Um, let me give you an example of of something that of of, of a reconciliation because we probably need to to be moving towards the idea of uh, reconciliation and there was a the Cherokees and the Shawnee fought for a number of years and um, the the Shawnee chief's name was Ghana and Ghana was a Seneca or I'm sorry the Seneca I said Shawnee a Seneca war chief and so they had to travel up and down the Ohio Valley to have this war I mean the the Seneca are located quite a distance from the Cherokee, but they had that for a number of years, and and finally uh, the Seneca chief had lost his wife and child mm. during the war. Um, he didn't know what happened to him. He thought they were dead. Uh, perhaps they were captured. He just didn't know. And so um, and so he decided after a while that that 
this is just not worth it. I don't want more people to go through what I, the grief I've gone through. And, and so they begin to make preparations. And, and they sent word to the Cherokee. And they said, we want to make preparations for peacemaking. Will you, will you allow us to make peace? And, and so um, for two years, they began the peacemaking process. So we've got a, 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 a hiatus on the war, right? right. And they began to uh, um, gather horses. And they began to gather the different things that would would uh, make for peace, uh, the gifting and the exchanging and all that sort of thing. And, and so the Senecas then traveled down to Cherokee country to the um, villages that, that whom they were at war with. And it said that the, uh, the Senecas came out with sticks, which stood for horses. And for every stick they gave you, that meant you would get a horse. And so each member of those Cherokees received uh, sticks. So they basically gave them the gift of horses, which was... You know, a, a pretty good gift back in the day, right? And so the Cherokees wanted to respond, and how they had decided they would respond was that um, that they would adopt different Senecas as relatives. And so one family would walk up to one person and say, you know, I'm taking you as my uncle. Uh, I'm taking you as my grandfather. I'm taking you as my brother. Uh, you know, I'm taking you as my sister. And, and, and basically... When you adopt a person into your clan, you can't fight against them. And that's the cardinal sin in, uh, in our old ancient Cherokee system was to kill a member of another clan. So once you're adopted in the clan, you're in that clan forever. And so, so now you can't fight against those people. It's a, it's a guarantee that there won't be war. And so they did that among each other, and, uh, and they continued uh, to, to do that until only Ghana was left. And Ghana, the man who began this process, was left, and, and the, the Senecas began to talk and say, why is there no one here for him? No one's accepting him. He's the man that started all this. You know, are they trying to shame us? Is this a trick? And at that time then, and it, remember it had been a few years since the war had started, a little boy walked up to Ghana, and he said, you are my father. Mm. And he looked at him carefully and he realized that it was his son oh that he had lost years before. And his son took him back to a, a home and he said, this is my mother, your wife. And so he was restored to his whole family oh again. My. And, wow. you know, maybe that's not, you know, the, for peacemakers, that's not always the promise. Um, but I think there's a, a truth there. Of, of that there are rewards to reconciliation. There are wars, uh, rewards to peacemaking that, that maybe we don't think about. Uh, and so if we can use that to understand where we have to go with this thing. And there's a couple um, things I think are necessary. I just want to mention real quick. Um, you're usually the one that gives numbers. Yeah. Like one, two. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I have a couple numbers for you. So right. number one, what can we do? Um, I think, first of all, we have to, and, and this is why the last program was about um, demythologizing um, the idea of heroes and the idea of war. And uh, we have to begin to, number one, remythologize mm. our American myths. Um, we have to look at the, the ones that point to war, and we have to look at the ones that point to peace, and we have to prefer the ones that point to peace. We have to look at the, the history that we have and begin to look at our heroes differently. You know, uh, not not heroes who you know uh, killed the most people, 
but but heroes maybe who made the most peace and and began to re-mythologize uh, America through education and then hopefully into our policies and replace the the myth that freedom uh, uh, is not brought through violence that's actually enslavement um, but freedom is is brought through peacemaking and. Um, you know, there's so many things that could be done. We could develop a national curriculum um, that re- would remythologize. Uh, we just need to retell the American story in a way that works for everybody, right? Secondly, number two, uh, crit- create strategic peacemaking processes. Um, this is where I'm talking about the Pentagon for Peace. Mm. I mean, uh, perhaps we could do that at state levels. Perhaps we could do that, uh, you know, if if the feds aren't willing to do this, but. Uh, we just we need to uh, pressure our Congress people into looking at Barbara Lee's uh, idea. Um, uh, you know, her idea, my idea might be different slightly, but I still think we're on this, the right path, right? Mm-hmm. If we can look at a Pentagon for peace and other ways that we can think of to strategize. So sexy campaigns, uh, you know, for games that instead of Call of Duty, how about some peace strategy games that reward <laughs> effective peacemaking, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, let's make that sexy, right? <laughs> let's, let's make peacemaking sexy. And finally, um, I think we have to create a more stri- stringent democratic process for going to war. Um, you know, women's councils, that's, that's one of the things that we could learn from. How about having grandmother's councils about going to war? Mm. Um, you know, how about, and, and putting that at a uh, federal cabinet level, uh, cabinet level at the, you know, one of the president's cabinets or something like that. Um, and, and how about, uh, um, going back to the idea that um, Congress can only declare war, not the president. So there's defensive measures also that could prevent the kinds of uh, mm-hmm. uh, mistakes that uh, maybe have been made in the past by giving the president too many, too many powers. And mm-hmm. the power to go to war certainly should be made by Congress people at the least. But I think we need to create other agencies and other councils that... Uh, that inform that decision and, and, and end up creating a, a wider process so more voices can be heard. Mm. So that's kind of my thoughts on the subject. Um, again, uh, like you said, uh, I think this is perhaps in the coming years maybe the, one of the most important things we ever talk about. Even though um, we, we are actively at war, it doesn't feel like it because we're not losing a lot of people. But I remember Vietnam, and I'm, I'm willing to learn the lessons from, from those who lost their lives there. Listeners, you have heard uh, a lot of ideas and uh, innovative concepts that might be integrated and employed in our current context. So we would love to know what, out of what you heard uh, in this episode and the previous one, resonated with you. What intrigued you? What would you like to hear uh, more about? Do you have ideas of your own? Maybe you have uh, a tradition that has an example of something that we could glean and, and learn from. We would love to compare notes. So let us know uh, what of this intrigued you, what resonated with your heart, what are your ideas as we inspire peacemaking for the road ahead. Yeah, this is... Piecing it all together, P-E-A-C-I-N-G. Thanks for joining us.